It's Number One with a Bullard, the audio edition. I'm Gabe Bullard. Today's episode, About Hustle, Burning Out in a Cool World. There is a little-known condition that affects all our lives. Symptoms range from lack of coordination to lack of direction to unusually mature behavior. Tell us about big-time journalism. Sometime after I turned five or six, my parents started signing me up for seasonal sports camps and teams. It wasn't mandatory, and while I'm sure I was asked, I'm also sure I didn't put much thought into my answers. Life as a kid involves a lot of going along with whatever happens. One weekend, I might watch Ninja Turtles and play Sonic the Hedgehog for hours. The next, I would get up early to learn how to dribble. Whatever the sport, whether it was practice or a tournament, and no matter the score, the coach always gave the same advice. Hustle. I assumed it meant run, then learned it was a catch-all term for work. There were never any clear instructions about what to do on the field or the court beyond hustle. It was the mantra of adult authority figures. Let's hustle, they said as we took the field. Nice hustle, they said at halftime. I saw you hustling out there, they said after the last whistle. Grown-ups loved hustle. Hustle puts the ball in the net. Hustle wins the game. Hustle is all you need to get ahead. Not quite. Two and a half decades of hustling and my generation is left with growing debt, a lousy job market, and a planet in crisis. And we keep hustling. Our devices hum with opportunities or commands to hustle. Hail a ride on Lyft and you'll see what you could make if you drove for them. Tap snooze on your smartphone alarm and you'll find a few emails you may as well get a head start on responding to. Share a thought or a photo on social media and get invited to boost your post and reach a few more strangers. Stay on Zoom after work to have a happy hour. Turn your hobby into a small business a side hustle. with Squarespace, Shopify, or some other startup. Hustling is necessary because rent is higher than ever and mortgages take two incomes. When it pays off, the reward is never what it seems to be. Luxuries, fashionable clothes, good groceries, tasteful furniture, have been downgraded and dropshipped. Everything is made flimsier and thinner and sold at the brink of obsolescence on installment plans. The thinness eventually shows through. We work hard, but something is lacking. Maybe it's material or reward. Maybe it's seats at certain tables. Maybe it's spiritual fulfillment that vague feeling that's only identifiable in its absence. Hustle hasn't won us the ball game, so we lose faith not only in the jobs, products, and services surrounding us, but in the system that brought them all to bear. It's hard to find meaning in a world where we can take out a microloan to buy a bidet that we have to install ourselves. In the face of all this, some give in, some give up, and others settle somewhere in between. The combination of recognition, rage, and resignation are traits of what's now widely called millennial burnout. Exhaustion is our modern mood. Of all the places where I might find commiseration, the 1983 movie The Big Chill was so low on the list it didn't even register. Before watching, I only knew the movie's reputation as yuppie apologia, a glorification of aging hippies who swapped protests for corporate partnerships, got rattled by reality, and took a few days to peer at their navels through a cloud of Motown and marijuana and just think, man, about what it all really means. The pop culture legacy of the big chill, from my view, was of a younger generation saying, OK, Boomer, in unison. That isn't entirely misplaced, but the movie is darker, more cynical, and more relatable than the reputation suggests. 
By way of plot, The Big Chill is thin and straightforward. A group of friends who went to the University of Michigan in the late 60s reunite 15 or so years later for the funeral of Alex, a friend who took his own life. When they meet, they realize they're all living with various levels of disappointment over how things turned out. They're successful, but something is missing. Meg, Mary Kay Place, wants a family. She gave up her job as a public defender for a cushy spot as a real estate lawyer, but is convinced that only a baby can make her whole. Karen, Jo Beth Williams, has a family and still feels unfulfilled. She longs to ditch her nice enough husband and hook up with her old friend Sam, Tom Berenger. Sam is an actor whose role in the cop show J.T. Lancer made him rich and famous, but it took so much time away from his family that his wife left him and took the kids. J.T. Lancer isn't what anyone would consider good TV, and Sam wonders if people laugh at him. Unlike Sam, Michael, Jeff Goldblum, knows people laugh at him. He works at People Magazine, where he's forbidden from writing, quote, anything longer than the average person can read during the average crap. He wants Sam's money and fame, which he thinks will bring him respect. Nick, William Hurt, doesn't seem to want anything. He's embraced the emptiness, giving up his Frasier-style radio show to deal drugs out of a beat-up Porsche. He's the type of nihilist who has thought of himself as a realist for so long that he can't tell the difference. Harold, Kevin Klein, is just as cynical, but in a more cheerful way than Nick. He dismisses the friend's activist past as a fruitless rejection of the privilege they were born into and were destined to embrace. Everything went right for him. He started a chain of running stores that he's planning to sell to a big conglomerate. He married his college sweetheart, Sarah, Glenn Close, who became a doctor. He's friendly with the local police and has employees who call him Sir. The movie is set in the house he bought after trading in his radical politics. When Sam arrives for the weekend, he marvels at the setup. Who would have thought we'd both make so much bread? Two revolutionaries. Harold pats him on the back and says, Good thing it's not important to us. These characters aren't especially sympathetic. My mistake going into the movie was thinking that it would be on their side. Director Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote the screenplay with Barbara Benedict, doesn't shy away from portraying his characters as poor little rich kids. At one point, Nick reminds the group, No one ever had a cushier birth than we did. And Kasdan doesn't let the characters off the hook for the compromises they've made. One evening, Michael, who's been hounding his friends to invest in a nightclub he wants to open, tells Sam he's aware that he can seem nakedly opportunistic. Michael insists this is a virtue. Everyone is selfish, he says, so dropping the facade of politeness is a more honest way to live. When Sam says that's just a massive rationalization for bad behavior, Michael says rationalizations are essential for survival, even more so than sex. I don't know anyone who could get through the day without two or three juicy rationalizations, he says. Everyone in the movie has their rationalizations. Nick's nihilism is a rationalization for taking and dealing drugs. Karen thinks leaving her husband for Sam will help her get back into writing. Meg believes she has to abandon public service if she wants a family. Sam justifies his J.T. Lancer paychecks by saying he puts a message of social value into each episode. These rationalizations aren't justifications, though. They're the characters' excuses for giving up who they were to get where they are. The movie is about how hollow the reward is when it takes more than money or hard work to attain. In one early scene, Kasdan shows us a quick cut of the characters' cars starting after Alex's memorial service. 
The grills of their European luxury vehicles rattle as the engines rev. When Kasdan moves to a wide shot, we see these high-priced, high-performance signifiers of status lumber into an orderly line for a slow drive to the graveyard. Later, Sam and Nick sneak into the kitchen for a midnight snack and bump into Karen's husband Richard, Don Galloway. Richard says he's been thinking about Alex, growing up, and having a family. The thing about kids is their instant priorities. You know you have to protect them and provide for them, and sometimes it means your life isn't exactly the way you want it to be. There's some asshole at work you have to kowtow to, and sometimes you find yourself doing things you never really thought you'd ever do. But you try to minimize that stuff and be the best person you can be. He's saying all this while drinking a glass of milk and eating what appears to be a mayonnaise sandwich. But the thing is, nobody said it was going to be fun. At least nobody said it to me. In other words, when you're out on the field, you're not there to have fun. You're there to hustle. There are plenty of ways the characters in The Big Chill aren't relatable to 30-somethings today. They're wealthy, white, and they work jobs that don't seem to be that demanding, if they work at all. Adversity is as lacking as diversity in their weekend together. But the ennui of early middle age that dominates their lives is similar to the unmoored feeling of burnout. The relative comfort of the friends in The Big Chill overshadows the fact that the source of their frustration has long been at the core of modern life. Four decades of wealth concentrating among the richest few has made the system that wore their generation down more efficient, more devastating, and easier to spot. Everything those characters have is harder to obtain now, except for the feeling of emptiness. That feeling is easier to find than ever. Even the event that first brought the friends together, college, is now synonymous with debt, a reminder that no amount of hustle is enough to guarantee anything. We judge past generations as if they lacked the self-awareness that plagues our own, but every new generation is born into the frustrations and anxieties of the last. The Big Chill continues the contemplation about work, capital, and family that drives the man in the gray flannel suit. What do the boomers in the Big Chill say that the Gen Xers in Reality Bites don't? What do they say that hasn't been tossed over a million times on Tumblr and TikTok? Is it so hard to imagine a group of millennials renting a VRBO in 2023 and having a similar kind of weekend as the gang in the Big Chill? Today's Michael writes for a content farm, Nick sells supplements on Instagram, and Sam stars in Marvel movies. They take edibles and talk about the old days. They clean up their DoorDash plates while In the Aeroplane Over the Sea plays on 180-gram vinyl. There is a millennial in the Big Chill. Theirs is the first voice we hear. It's Harold and Sarah's three-year-old babbling in the bathtub, guided by Harold into singing about how Jeremiah was a bullfrog loudly and tunelessly. That's when the phone rings with news about Alex. Sarah takes the call and conveys the message to Harold with nothing more than a tear-streaked face. That's life. We're happy in our bubble. Then the crying starts.
Number One with a Bullard is written and produced by me, Gabe Bullard. I also do the music. Linda Golden edits the script that I read and the newsletter that you can read at GabeBullard.com. If you would like to start the new year off on a good foot cosmically, then you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review, or you could tell someone about the newsletter. You could also subscribe yourself. Either way, it would be great if you would sign up, spread the word somehow. All of it would be much appreciated. Thanks, and welcome to a new year. Bye.